You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. All right. Gentlemen, let's get after it. Um, hey, we're, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Um, and so uh, if you have your copy of the scriptures, open them to Ephesians chapter 4. And then also put a finger in Acts chapter 18. We're going to talk through a a ton of scripture today, uh, this morning. I just want to read and chat, read and chat, and then at the very end, really kind of sum it up into some very practical um, truths um, from our study. Uh, it's, it's sweet to be with you guys, um, the young guy um, here on staff that uh, gets to do this. And so um, uh, my name's Eric Clark. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the uh, staff pastors here at Stonegate. And uh, I get to oversee our, some of our group life ministry and then some of our, our, our member partner process. So um, it's good to be with you. Uh, from the very top, I want to tell you uh, a couple things. First, uh, I, I want you to know my posture. There are a lot of you in this room that are, um, uh, as, as Paul would tell Timothy, um, uh, implore and entreat fathers and plead with them. And so there's, there's some of you in here that I consider spiritual fathers and the, you, you could be my father. And so uh, there, there are others of you in here who um, Paul would say as, as brothers, you know, engage with, as, as younger men engage them as brothers. And so, um, and some of you, honestly, a couple of you, man, we've done life together. And so I, I come to you not as somebody who has what we're gonna talk about figured out. It's, it's a fellow disciple on this path, this pilgrimage, um, just imploring you from my study in light of the text. So I just wanted you to be, I just wanted to be totally upfront. And so it's sweet to be here. Let me, let's pray together real quick and ask God to bless our time. And then we will dive into Ephesians chapter four. God, I, I thank you for these men. Um, there's so much wisdom so much life. Um, I think about just the reality of me being a new dad and how much I, I, I need to <laughs> reach out to some of these guys and go, what, what in the world? I'm about to, I don't know. Um, but the reality that, that, God, that you've drawn into this room, the wisdom, the love, the, the perseverance, the leadership. God, I pray that in this moment, whether, whether young or old, God, would you speak to us through your word? Would you do something in and through your word, God, that cannot happen outside of it, the spirit moving in our hearts? And, and so, God, help us. Help us now for your great name and our ever-increasing joy in you, God, that we might be men who are ferocious heralders of the gospel and lovers of people. Only you can do that. It's in your mighty name, Jesus, that we as men come together on a Wednesday morning and pray, amen. All right, so, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was preparing for our time together and I was listening to Scott last week and understanding the last two weeks he's been in Philippians and looking at the life of Paul and then last week really talking about this idea of koinonia, this, this idea of shared life, or this partnership in the gospel. Um, really, two things struck me as I listened to that um, podcast. And the first was, was, was really this, is that there's this idea of the partnering is so fundamental for us in the Christian faith, this idea of koinonia, shared life. It's, it's more than just uh, me partnering, 
disconnected from one another, but it's us partnering together in deep, meaningful, Christ-centered, grace-driven community to see the gospel advance. We have to understand that that, 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 that is true, but then that kind of leads into what really hit me, what really fell on my heart like a ton of bricks. He said, I think twice, as he looked out into this room and said, there is such potential in this room, so much leadership that, that it could legitimately start a revolution, a spiritual revolution here in Midland. And, and you know, I've been, I've been in rooms, I've set in seats just like you are, and I've heard guys say that same exact phrase, that there is this potential here, if we would just get it, if we would just partner with Jesus, if we would just become Jesus-centered, and we could change the world. And I've also said it. And so what I felt compelled by the Lord to do is to really just in our time together, really look at a case study of a church that legitimately did that, to see its positives and then see how it really drifted. Because um, as you can see on your, uh, on your note sheet, really for us, the case study is the, the Ephesian church. So instead of just reading through Ephesians, what I want to do is I want to read a little bit in Ephesians, but then I want to track through the book of Acts and then I want to go through uh, reference um, Ephesians and reference First and Second Timothy because Timothy was an elder in the Ephesian church. And then I want to reference First and Second John because John was a uh, an elder in the Ephesians church. And then I want to finally, you know, land kind of land on Revelation two, uh, really the warning to the Ephesian church, and then go all the way back to Acts because ultimately the Ephesians church. I mean. It was, it was a church that was used by God to change a region, but for a lot of factors really ultimately drifted into irrelevance and ultimately death. And so I just want to feel like we needed to pile into that. So Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 16. Um, sorry, there's not going to be a lot of slides. I, I, I intended to do that, but then I had a screaming nine-week-old last night at the house. And so some of you know what that's like. And so uh, please extend some grace to me in that. I would appreciate that. So Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, and he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. Now here's important, verse 12. He gave all of those to the church for this reason. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by, the, that next word is important, every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And what's interesting about the book of Ephesians, it's like the, the, the Mount, I mean, the Mount Everest of ecclesiology or how we are to do church. And so Paul takes the first three chapters and gives this gospel indicative. And he says, hey, this is what Christ has objectively done in the finished work of the cross. And, and this, is the, this is how it changes your identity. This is how it changes your legacy. I mean, a whole slew of things that we don't have time to go through. 
And then he, and then he, then he goes through um, chapters four through six and says, in light of the indicative of the finished work of Christ, here's the imperative in light of that. And, 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 and so for us in Ephesians chapter four, this really shows us when the, when the church is working like it should, the, the leaders, the pastors, the, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers are, to, are, 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 are given the mantle to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But I think what we've done in a lot of times is we've, we've kind of flipped that, especially in the Western church, and it's we pay some guy on staff to do the work of ministry and we just attend. But the Bible would go and start contradiction to that and say, really, it's the saints who are to do the work of ministry. And so there's this onus, and, and, and the blank that you have on there is that every disciple is a disciple maker. We can't get away from that. I mean, Matthew 28 says, literally, as you go, as you go, make disciples, teaching them to observe. So he's teaching with the result to live a life, a distinct life. And so we, in, we here, what we have to realize is that if the body is going to work and build itself up in love, that means that every single joint needs to be working together. And so there, there has to be this DNA in the church where every single person has, has just not only has this personal relationship with Jesus, but understands that I'm caught up in something bigger than myself, this grand body that God is using to advance the gospel. And if, if I'm not working, if I'm not a part, if I'm not fulfilling what God has wired, called, and gifted me to be, not only in the, the, the building or the, the gathering on Sunday, but into the marketplace and into our kids' activities and, 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 and on and on and on, then the body is not gonna grow itself up in love. It's gonna drift into irrelevance and ultimately death because, because what happens in that culture if it's just the, the, the personality or the method or, or the program, when that goes away, if there's not a discipling culture where disciples are making disciples, then in the end, when that personality, that program or whatever goes away, that church will drift into irrelevance and ultimately death. And we're gonna see that happening in a lot of ways to the Ephesian church. So um, turn over to Acts chapter 18. We're gonna start there. We're just gonna kind of track the, the beginning of the church. We're just gonna read a lot of scripture. Um, I may, may uh, highlight a few things and then um, we're gonna uh, really camp out on a couple things. So uh, Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 19. This is really the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, out of the three that we have recorded in uh, the book of Acts. And so uh, Acts 18, verse 18. Uh, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila at whatever. He, I think it's Sincre, um, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus. So this is is Paul's really first touch at the end of his second missionary journey to the town of Ephesus. And he left them, Priscilla and Aquila, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, which is really his, his pattern. He, he would go into a new city and go into the synagogue and begin to reason with the Jews about how Jesus was the Messiah. We've been in this trustworthy series at Stonegate over the last seven weeks, all about Jesus, how Jesus is prophesied and spoken about through the Old Testament. Well, this at this point, this is what Paul was doing. He was going into 
the synagogues and reasoning with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So this was his pattern. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So at the end of verse 22, that's the end of his second missionary journey. So in verse 23 is the beginning of his third missionary journey. So after spending some time there, Paul departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phygeria, strengthening all the disciples. I also love this. If you read through the book of Acts, you always see Paul have this rhythm of going to a place, reasoning in the synagogue, then going to the Jews. And it always says that he was strengthening the disciples. He understood that every disciple is a disciple maker and understood that it, it wasn't just him. It wasn't, the church wasn't just built on Paul, but it was, if it was to have any effect in the marketplace, any effect in culture, it had to be because there was this movement of disciples making disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. So he'd always go back and strengthen them. So you see in your timeline there, number one, that's, that, that, that's the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the first touch to the Ephesians. This is around 52 AD. And so going on to number two, this is really kind of how the, um, the Ephesian church starts to gain momentum. So read with me in verse 24. Now a new, now a, a new, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. May that be said about us that we be competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he only knew the baptism of John. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, remember Paul left them there in Ephesus, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him uh, the way of God more accurately. Verse 27, and when he and when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's really the province of Achaia or where Corinth is located. The brothers encouraged him because Priscilla and Aquila were from Corinth and they would have had a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, relationships and hopes for their city. And so they encouraged him to go because they saw how the gospel of Christ had taken root in, in Apollos' life. They encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So as we engage the culture, we need to be so competent in the scriptures that we can engage in uh, not polarizing dialogue, but, but really Jesus-centered dialogue. And so this is really, we see the progression. Paul touches the Ephesus, leaves Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos comes, is teaching, and then God uses Priscilla and Aquila, who is with Paul, to help Apollos better understand and teach the gospel. So you can begin to see God cultivating the foundation of this church. Now, number three, it's Paul then arrives in Ephesus. So starting in verse one of chapter 19, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through, this is on his third missionary journey, through the inland country that, and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. So you can, you can start to see that, that there, even without a, a, a legitimate planted church, that the gospel is already creating disciples. 
disciples who are creating disciples, understanding that every disciple is a disciple maker. It's not just the, the personalities, it's, it's everybody has investment in this gig. Now, just for the sake of time, we're gonna drop down to uh, verse number eight. Um, verse eight, and he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God is the loving rule and reign of God. Verse nine, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. I, I love reading in the book of Acts when, when you hear the recounting of the way before they were called Christians. I, I just, there's something in me that, that, that loves that because they were not known necessarily by a cultural, you know, moniker, but they were known for the way that they lived. The way that they lived, the gospel had so impacted them that it wasn't just what they believed, but how they lived. They were known for, you were a part of the way. I just think that's really sweet. It presses on my heart, just have I made that connection between the intellect and the heart and the way that I live my life. Uh, verse nine, speaking evil away before the congregation, he withdrew. Now, this is crazy. The last part of nine and 10. And just think about this in our context, given the pace of life, considering the economic boom, considering just the amount of people moving into our region, just considering everything that we're all feeling right now. Think about verse nine and 10. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This, so his reasoning daily continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That boggles my mind. That Paul in this movement, this movement of the way, this reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And what's interesting about this is the hall of Tyrannus was just a, it was, it was a Greek kind of pagan worship kind of, you know, just Greek pagan worship. I, just, I don't want to try to get too complicated. That's what it was. So he, he'd gone from the religious, kind of the Jewish establishment to the hall of Tyrannus and said, this gospel is for all. It's not just one ethnic group. And he reasoned daily for so many years that everybody in that region heard the word of the Lord. What would it look like in three years for us to look back and said, you know what? For the last three years, God has done such a work in and through the lives of his local church here that everybody in the Permian Basin has heard the word of the gospel. Not just attended church, but heard the gospel. They understood, I mean, this, this movement was not just a personal relationship, but that it affected culture, it affected life. And what is it, what is, I mean, that, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it just, it, it terrifies me and it brings me great hope of what God could do in, the law, in and through the lives of men and women who are just submitted to him. So let's continue on. Now, we have to jump down now to number five on your timeline, which is gospel fruit. So this is the fruit. This is what's going to happen. This is what's gonna be produced from the reasoning daily, the, the communication of the gospel of grace. So read with me in verses 12 through 20. 
let's start in 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came to them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Um, I, I think it's interesting that, that, that Paul was so influential that even those itinerant Jewish exorcists who did not know Jesus were so compelled by what was happening, how God was moving in the miraculous that they tried to leverage a name that they didn't even know. I mean, that's just crazy to me that there was such a movement of God that even unbelievers said, you know what, that's so powerful that we are going to try to adjure somebody by the name of Paul's Jesus. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil, well, verse 15, sorry, verse 14, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I think, anybody ever read this before and just gone, really? Like, this this demonic spirit is just toying and having fun with these itinerant Jewish exorcists. He's playing around. Hey, Jesus I know, I've heard about him. I I mean, James, even the demons know that Jesus is the Messiah and shudder, right? Paul, we've heard about him, but man, who are you? And then verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them. And this is like the ultimate like Axe UFC fight and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Anyways, we don't have time for that. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or treasured uh, or delighted in. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word, I love this, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Just a beautiful picture of what happens when, 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 when the gospel really impacts our souls, lives change, transformation takes place. This is the fruit of the gospel. Now, going down to number six, this is the effect of the gospel. This is the effect. This is what um, the effect of the gospel can have. Um, this, is, this is impressive. So we're going to read the uh, verses 21, uh, the rest of um, chapter 19. So stick with me. Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I, I must also see Rome. And having sent them into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia. He stayed in Ephesus. About the time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of the pagan god, god, uh, uh, goddess Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So he's really saying that this, this, this craftsman who is making a lot of money on a lie, perverting the, uh, forsaking the God of the Bible, 
making money off selling stuff for pagan deities, making money in an evil way. Verse 25, these he gathered together, the, the workmen in similar trades, and said, men, you know that from this business we have made our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god, goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she uh, whom all Asia and the world Worship, verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and uh, Macedonians who, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Aristarchs, uh, who were friends of his sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Kind of just, uh, it's just mob think. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward and Alexander monitoring, uh, motioning with his hand wanted to make, the, make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So you can kind of see that there's this, because of the way it had impacted, because the gospel had taken so, so much root into the lives of this, of this area that it was causing even the socioeconomic fabric to begin to rip apart and tear. I mean, the gospel, when it penetrates, is not just for us personally and for our personal relationship with Jesus, but God is renewing all things. He is renewing culture and, and, and he is, he's working in the midst of the marketplace. And so when the gospel really takes root, it not only affects lives, but it affects cities, it affects culture, it affects commerce, it affects business. It's, it just does when the gospel is faithfully preached. Verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is temple, is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemous of our goddess. Uh, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly, verse 44, we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly after the uproar, verse one of chapter 20, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to Macedonia. What's interesting here is that you just, you just see just what, what happens. Paul in the way had made such a difference that it caused commotion. It, Literally, God used the church of Ephesus to just engage a whole region. Not only did they all hear the gospel in the word of the Lord, but the gospel had taken such root in lives that it was causing men and women who used to buy 
pagan idols to say, you know, no, no, I only worship the God of creation. He is one God and, and, and idols made with hands. Paul has taught us that there are no gods in themselves. And so I'm not gonna buy that anymore. And so when the gospel takes root, things change, not only personally, but in the city. And so for us, now we're gonna, gonna jump into uh, the parting of the family. So uh, number seven, the goodbye. Really, um, just for the sake of time, we're not gonna necessarily read this. In chapter 20, in verses 17 through 24, this is Paul knowing that he is going to be arrested and taken to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. He comes, calls the Ephesian elders and gives them and communicates his heart. And he says, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm about to be led and, and, and there's gonna be trials that await me. And in the end, I'm gonna be arrested. But, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to shepherd the flock of God well. Shepherd them well. Because look down uh, number eight, the warning. Read, we're gonna read uh, verse, uh, verses 28 through 32 of chapter 20. So Paul is communicating to the elders. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm entrusting you this culture of disciples making disciples. And he says, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, so he's talking to the elders, from among you will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you, everyone, with tears. And so he gives this warning that, hey, after I leave, there's gonna be these fierce wolves, these false teachers who are gonna try to infiltrate the church. And as a matter of fact, some of you are gonna lead men away through your twisted understanding of the gospel. And so what was this church that, that affected a region, Paul was warning that after I leave, that that you're gonna have to contend for the gospel and contend for right doctrine. And so you see in um, um, moving on from that, you, uh, number nine on there, the evidence of partnership. Um, you just see Paul just literally weeping over the, the partnership that he had with the elders in Ephesus, the time that he spent there. They literally fall on each other's necks and weep because they know that they're not gonna see him again. And so Paul leaves, and then you see um, Paul towards imprisonment. 10, 11, 12, and 13 really are there just for you and really your own study. This is tracking Paul through the rest of his time in um, the book of Acts on into imprisonment. Now, the, the post-imprisonment there, number 14. So in 62 to 64 AD, Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome. And this is well attested by uh, a lot of the church fathers in their writing. And number 15 though, moving on, Paul writes first and second Timothy. So in 64 to 67 AD, he writes to Timothy and in chapter one of first Timothy one, he says, hey, remember when I left you in Ephesus to set it in order. So Timothy, a young man, about 35, about my age, has been, in, been, been given to the Ephesians church to help um, protect against what Paul warned them in chapter 20. Hey, fierce wolves, false teachers are gonna come in. Timothy, go to Ephesus, stay there, watch over the flock, teach, correct, hold the gospel high. And so you see on your note sheet there, really, uh, uh, these are the, really the four things that if you read through um, uh, 
you read through First and Second Timothy, this is what happened. That, that first blank there is that false teachers had already infiltrated the Ephesian church. This is, this is less than a dec- decade later from Paul's warning in Acts chapter 20. Less than a decade, false teachers had already infiltrated the church. And so Paul tells Timothy over First and Second Timothy, you need to hold high the gospel. You need to watch over your doctrine. You need to make, make, make sure that your doctrine is biblical and scriptural. He said, set an example in your youth and then finally combat the heresy and false teaching. And so, so you see the church start, you see the gospel explode, you see the fruit of the gospel, you see a whole region change, you see Paul leave and warn them only to a decade later, false teachers and wolves are already infiltrating the church to which Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, this is how you engage the Ephesian controversy, this Ephesian heresy, this is what it means to do that. And then you see number 16, that Paul was in martyred in Rome, um, 64, some, sometime between 64 and 67 AD. Uh, number 17, John the Apostle spends time in Ephesus in 85 AD. Um, and then in 85 to 95, somewhere around in there, uh, people kind of, they disagree. John the Apostle writes First and Second John, which is his, his kind of pastoral kind of treatise to the Ephesians church. And so um, if you have, your, uh, if you have uh, your, your scriptures, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1. I think this is important for us to read. 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 5, and we're going to read through 2, verse 3. Um, so this is still the Ephesian church. This is Paul, this is John writing to the Ephesian church. And you can see the, through the progression of where we are now. Starting in verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship or koinonia, partnership, shared life with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we, excuse me, if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing to you these things, verse one, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. In verse three, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so um, if you continue on in first and second John, you you see that there's more drift happening in the Ephesian church. They are having, uh, they're they're really the, people think that they have no sin. I mean, John is writing, if you think you, have no sin, you're a liar. I mean, if you don't understand that you still have this, this remaining sin that needs to be laid down and confessed, it's, it's not, what he's saying here is that you don't have to confess to remain saved, but now that you've been saved by the objective work of Jesus, we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We have to understand and be, be stewards and, 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 and explorers of our own souls and our hearts and, and saying, What's, what's, what's dark in me? What's, what's opposed of God in me? And so there, there's this more drift. There are people who think that they have no sin. The, the third bullet is they believe that they don't have to continue in confession and repentance. There's this idea that, oh no, I'm good, I'm good. 
John would say, no, no, we need to confess. We need to repent. It needs to be an ongoing ethic in our life, a daily ongoing ethic in our life. And the last is that we need to talk. They, they talked a lot about love, but their actions would betray their words. You can read through First and Second John and you, he really confronts them because they're a people of a lot of words, but their actions don't match their words. And he says, no, no, no. If you say you're, lo- if you say, one example is if you say you love your brother, but then you, you, you let him just go on and he, he needs things, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, and you don't meet his needs, I mean, how can you say you love your brother? I mean, how- and so he's really pressing into your life is not matching up with your words. And then, and then moving on to number 19 here, uh, John writes Revelation in 95 to 96. Um, and then uh, our, our last number really, he warns the church of Ephesus. So turn over a couple books to Revelation chapter two. So you see, um, what's interesting is that the Ephesian church had a pretty stout pastoral team. They had Timothy, they had Apollos, then they had Paul, and then they had Timothy, then they had John. And yet, even those kind of, heroes of the New Testament church, the church still declined. The church still drifted into irrelevance and, and ultimately, we're gonna see here, ultimately died. It needs to be a warning to us. It needs to be a, a, a loving, kind of confronting grace to us today. Um, I mean, if, if that happened to Ephesus, who are we to say that that couldn't happen to us, regardless of if you're a member partner or a tender at Stonegate or you're a part of another church. And so uh, Reve- Revelation chapter two, starting in verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, verse two, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them false. So, so I get, so, so we can see from this is that they've taken seriously the call to, to, to confront the false teachers, the wolves, the people who would want to teach contrary doctrine. So he, he says, hey, this is what you're doing. I, I see it. This is good. Verse three, I know you, you are uh, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So, I mean, this sounds like a pretty impressive place. But verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, remove your influence, remove your light from its place unless you repent. And so from the outside on your note sheet, things look good, but God the Spirit searches their hearts. He searches their motivations. He, he searches their intent. And then he tells them that they've abandoned their first love. And so everything on the outside of the Ephesian church looks good. I mean, they're, they're, they're combating false doctrine. They are patiently enduring. They are, they are doing these things. So on the outside, everything looks good, but, but God is not just concerned about what the outward looks like. He presses in and says, hey, this is what I have against you. And so uh, uh, he, says, he says, you've forsaken, you've forsaken your first love. And so a lot of times we, we look at this and we, we think, well, is this just this, it's on your note sheet, 
but is their first love just this hyper-romantic, soft view of loving Jesus? No, it's more gritty, it's more, more robust, more powerful. Now, here's what we have to do to understand the acts that they did at first. Jump all the way back now to Acts chapter 19. This is where we're gonna land three things. Acts chapter 19, we, we read it already. But this is the acts that they did at first. Verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. Acts 19, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Verse 17, and, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So at the beginning, what 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 John through Revelation 2 is telling the church of Ephesus is remember, I have it on the note sheet that they they walked in a proper fear of God that led to Jesus being loved and treasured and delighted in. So for us really that that the culture of what what needs to happen, what we need to recover, what we need to come back to is Jesus centrality where we delight in him, where we love him, where we have this deep affection for him. Not a romantic type of love. I mean, I don't know about you, but when, when I hear that kind of, you know, fall in love with Jesus, well, it's kind of weird for me. Like, I love him like I, I love my dad. I don't love him romantically. I wanna be one with him. And so what, 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 what the apostle's calling us back to is this, un, just this robust, gritty, reverential fear in delighting in Jesus where he is central in our lives. But he goes on from that. Verse 18, also, uh, many of those who were now believers came confessing. So they came to one another confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so that the word of God continued, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so, so, so here, here, here's the rest. So he's calling them back to that partnership that, that Scott talked about, this koinonia, this one another living. They came to one another, right? They came to one another. They didn't do this in a vacuum. They weren't isolated. They came to one another and they confessed. They said, they, I'm, I'm admitting, I'm taking responsibility for the sin. This is, this is this, what, what confession means. They came to one another and said, and this is what I have done. This is, I'm taking responsibility for my sin. I'm not gonna blame it on other people. And so, 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 so I think that really presses on us. I mean, are we, are we quick to look at our own lives? Are we quick to look at the, the log in our own eye before to look at the speck in our brother's eye? Are we quick to confess and take responsibility? I mean, think about your life. What are the things that beset you and befall you that your first thought is to blame somebody else. At the beginning of Ephesus, they came to one another and confessed and took responsibility for their own sin. But not only that, but they divulged their practice. They divulged their practices. They came, they brought their deeds into the light. I mean, this is difficult for us as guys. This is difficult for us as guys to look through the shame, to overcome the pride and to divulge what befalls us, to come to one another in the context of koinonia, to come uh, into context of the body, Ephesians 4, and says, hey, this is who I am. This is what befalls me. This is what besets me. I, I'm not gonna continue to walk in the darkness. A guy who's influenced my life, um, 
Uh, Matt Chandler, he's a pastor in Dallas. Senator is teaching really for 14 years. I make no um, excuses for that. I mean, it's 14 years of been uh, you know, affected by him. He said recently in one of his sermons, if you are fully known, then what does the enemy have to accuse you of? But if we remain in the darkness, if we remain in sin, if we remain to cover our practices to where nobody knows us because we're so beset and so enslaved to pride and shame, then we're gonna walk in that and have no joy. Jesus will not be central. We, we will fear confessing. We will fear divulging of practices. And this is what John says to Ephesus, that you have all of your theology right. You have all of your gospel participation right. Everything on the outside looks good, but what you have failed to do is you failed to really partner with one another in, opus, in open, honest, gospel-centered, robust, intrusive, grace-driven community. And so as we close here in the last minute, I want to ask you a couple, couple things. What will be your daily ethic? What will be the things that you do on a daily, daily basis? The first question is this, is your life centered on Jesus? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? The gospel is not just what we believe when we enter into the kingdom, but really the gospel is, is, is what we dive into as we progress in Jesus' chain. Are you centered on Christ? Like, is he your center? Not an add-on, not a compartment, but is he center? The second thing is, are you living in isolation or are you living in intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven community? Because these in Ephesus came together confessing their sin and divulging their practices. And as men, especially in our culture, it's gonna take a work of the spirit for that to take place. The last two questions are this. As you go out through your, your day, your week, what is it that you need to take responsibility for and confess? What is, what is the sin that is so easily entangling you, Hebrews would say? We need to come to one another and say, brother, brother, this is what I need to confess. Wife, this is what I need to confess. Son or daughter, daddy did this. I need to confess. I need to ask you for forgiveness. What is it in your life, not just theoretical, but what is it that we have to confess? I mean, I don't have time to do that. Last thing, and I'll let you go. Are you walking in secret sin? I mean, is there something in the dark recesses of your life right now, these practices that, that, that are in the darkness that God is asking you to bring to the light? Hopefully, by God's spirit, we might be people coming back to the reality of the birth of Ephesus. So hey, thanks for your attention. Uh, thanks for your grace for allowing me to go a minute or two over. You guys have a great day. Um, thanks.